In today's episode, we're diving deep into a concept often heard in religious circles, but one that sparks a lot of debate. Hate the sin, love the sinner. This phrase has been used to navigate complex moral dilemmas, but it's not without controversy. What does it really mean? And how does it shape our interactions with others, especially in a world where understanding and empathy are often missing? I hope you're ready for a challenge because I'm going to make you think. Welcome to Life Repurposed. This is where midlife meets inspiration, practical guidance, and renewed purpose amid life's evolving chapters. We navigate faith questions and messy, uncertain twists with humor and a commitment to pursue treasure, even in the hard stuff. I'm your host, Michelle Rayburn, the author of books and Bible studies about finding hope in the trashy stuff of life. I thought I had covered this topic on the podcast in the past, but I've looked back at all 187 episodes and I can't find it. So I think it's about time that this phrase gets its own episode. I know I've mentioned it in some of my speaking and my writing, so I think that's why I thought I covered it on the podcast as well. This week, I'm talking about the expression, hate the sin, love the sinner. Oh yes, I'm going there. This expression has come from my mouth in the past sometimes, but after some untwisting and untangling, I don't think it's possible for me to do this, to hate the sin and love the sinner. More on that shortly. But in the midst of midlife, many of us find ourselves at a crossroads where the beliefs and the ideals that we've always held dear are suddenly up for scrutiny. It's a time marked by an introspection and a reflection where we might begin to question the things we've always heard and simply accepted without much thought. Sometimes we do this in our 20s after growing up maybe like I did in a Christian home and we're wrestling through some things and we land on some conclusions. But my problem was what I landed on was still really founded in just repeating and regurgitating the things I had heard most of my life. And now in midlife, I'm really thinking about things and not questioning God's existence. Please understand, I'm not questioning that. I'm questioning if what I've always been taught came from the Bible or if it was man-made or what in the world was the origin of this. This period of questioning is not about abandoning our values or dismissing our past experiences either. Instead, it's about seeking deeper understanding and seeking truth. We might realize that the world is far more nuanced than we once believed, and our perspectives evolve as we gain new insights and life experiences and realize there are many, many different expressions of the Christian faith, even among people who solidly believe in the Bible. A repurposed life is one that challenges the norms and conventions that have dictated our path so far. It's about embracing change and redefining our purpose, even if it means stepping outside of our comfort zones or facing uncertainty. We don't have to have the answers to all the questions. Instead of passively accepting the status quo, we actively seek growth, authenticity, and fulfillment. We're open to new possibilities and unafraid to question the old paradigms that no longer serve us. Throughout this process, we not only discover more about ourselves, but it also contributes to a richer and more meaningful life. 
So as I explain my untwisting of this idea, I encourage you to look for where you might have become tangled up in something you didn't really notice along the way. And if at the end of this episode you decide I was wrong, that's okay too. It means you thought through it and you came to an informed conclusion. Or maybe it means you'll go further and you'll dig more. We all have to do our own investigation and not just trust someone else's process. The expression, hate the sin, love the sinner, is often attributed to Christian teachings, particularly within certain religious circles. This expression can oversimplify complex theological concepts. It implies several things. One, that I'm emotionally mature enough to know where the boundary between hating a person and their behavior lies. It, number two, it implies that hate is a good thing. Three, that I can somehow show both love and hate at the same time. Four, that I can decide which behaviors qualify for hating and which don't. And five, that I can determine what that hate, in quotes, should look like. Now, maybe it implies something that is true and maybe it's something that is not, and that's what we're here to answer. The thing is, we say, hate the sin, love the sinner, because it often makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm going to put it out there that it isn't really about loving the other person as much as it's about making sure we can justify some of our actions under the hating the sin category and not feel as if we have abandoned love. And it feels well-intentioned to say we love sinners. We can say anything, but my actions have not always aligned with what I say. And that's why I'm thinking this through. Now, the saying might seem well-intentioned, but it can be both unbiblical and harmful for several reasons. One, the phrase suggests a clear separation between the sin and the sinner, implying that we can condemn the sin while still showing love and acceptance toward a person who's committing it. However, the Bible doesn't neatly separate the sin from the sinner in the way that this expression implies, so it's oversimplified and it might misinterpret Bible teachings. Number two, In practice, using this phrase can lead to judgmental attitudes and hypocrisy because it can create a sense of superiority among those who claim to hate the sin while claiming to love the sinner. This fosters an environment of condemnation rather than compassion. This attitude can drive people away from the church and from seeking spiritual growth, and in many ways, it can have the opposite effect of what we're trying to achieve. Number three, saying hate the sin, love the sinner can undermine empathy and understanding toward individuals who struggle with various sins or life circumstances. It oversimplifies complex issues and fails to acknowledge the struggles and experiences that lead people to certain behaviors. It's easy to sit in my armchair and make judgments about somebody who doesn't live in my home. Rather than offering genuine support and assistance, this expression can alienate people and perpetuate stigma and shame. The last thing on this list is that using this phrase can be harmful, especially when it's directed toward marginalized groups or individuals who already face discrimination or even persecution. It can contribute to a culture of intolerance and exclusion, which further marginalizes those who are already vulnerable. 
And I would put that out there that when we say this and we're talking not necessarily within Christian circles, it also complicates it a lot because we're standing in judgment of somebody who isn't even claiming to be a Christian and then it's harmful as well. So it's very complex. But before we go into why this phrase has me thinking differently in the framework of a life repurposed, I want to look at just a tiny bit of the history as far as I can find it. So I have found in looking back that St. Augustine used a sort of similar expression. He said, with love for mankind and hatred of sins. And so with love for mankind and hatred of sins kind of fits if we were to say love the sinner, hate the sin, or hate the sin, love the sinner, whichever order you're going to say it in. It's sort of Um, been twisted and and manipulated maybe a long time and and stated that way. But also in 1929, Gandhi used a similar statement in his autobiography. He said, hate the sin and not the sinner. However, when we look at that in full context, it says, hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept, which though easy to understand is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. So if we take that one out of context, he's not really saying the same thing at all. So we know that over time, the expression has morphed into what we use it today. This often happens with things. We pick up on something within the Christian circles, within the church, and we use it because it's an easy expression, and we think it's a simplified way of saying what we want to say. But the problem with the expression is that as a human who is flawed and sinful myself, It's nearly impossible for me to see someone else's sin and hate it without also developing contempt for the person as well. I can't do a good job of loving you if I'm also hating your sin. I want you to listen to what author Adam Hamilton said in his book, Half-Truths. I think Jesus knew that if he commanded his disciples to love the sinner, they would begin looking at other people more as sinners than neighbors. And that inevitably would lead to judgment. If I love you more as a sinner than as my neighbor, then I am bound to focus more on your sin. I will start looking for all the things that are wrong with you, and perhaps without intending it, I will be thinking about our relationship like this. You are a sinner, but I graciously choose to love you anyway. If that sounds a little puffed up, self-righteous, and even prideful to you, then you have perceived accurately. End quote. Jesus said, love your neighbor, meaning we should love all people. He didn't say, love sinners. He did say, love your enemies and do good to them. He told his followers that. And this reflects the unconditional love, mercy, and grace of God. But he said, love your neighbor. And our neighbor could be a Christian brother or sister. And our neighbor could also be somebody who's living in what we would define as a sinful lifestyle. That covers a lot of things. When I say sinful lifestyle, that basically covers anything we would list under a category of outside of what God's biblical guidelines are. And we often categorize those things. And I'm just, I'm putting it out there that a lot of the times we eliminate our own sins from the list. And so we're looking at somebody else's lifestyle and we're not looking at our own. So that is a caveat behind all of this. Now, many Christians will agree with the idea that um, the unconditional love, mercy, and grace of God should be part of loving your neighbor. Like, people will agree with the idea that we are to love our neighbor. But many Christians will then follow that up with something like this. It isn't loving to allow someone to remain stuck in sin. 
We love the sinner by speaking the truth in love. This will then continue with instructions to hate the sin by refusing to condone it, to ignore it, or excuse it. I disagree with that statement, and I'll tell you why. First, this is often applied selectively. Have you noticed that the policies often apply to sexual sins but not others? Or I've seen it start to spill over into political choices, but it doesn't have a clear guideline for exactly how to apply it across the board. Second, this type of seeing it this way requires us to sit in God's place. If we don't have clear biblical instructions on something, how do we determine what is right or wrong? I think like of the shiny happy people documentary with wearing pants. How do I determine if it's right or wrong to wear pants if that's not in the Bible? When I love someone while trying to hate their sin, it will always come with conditions I put on them, which includes wanting them to hold the same beliefs as I do. And third, when we use words like condone, it gets into murky waters where we have to decide what is condoning. Is it condoning to attend events or weddings or celebrations for people with whom I don't agree? Is it loving and caring? Is it condoning to have a conversation and have a meal together? Is it my place to make sure I point out someone else's sins regularly? Or is that something I shouldn't talk about often? What is condoning? Then the question comes up, is it excusing to show compassion without also sharing the gospel? For example, providing food or shelter only if someone complies with listening to a sermon. Obviously, a topic like this is going to bring up more questions than answers. And I could bring you a whole list of Bible verses pertaining to sin. I could take them out of context and show you how we could create policies based on all kinds of verses. But I want to look at the whole of Scripture and the tone of Scripture and Jesus' example. And I know that there are specifics that could be discussed, but there's an example from Jesus' lifetime that I think is really helpful that we can follow as, as sort of a not prescriptive necessarily, but a really great example of what it means to love people. So I want to go to the story of Zacchaeus, which is found in the New Testament in the Bible, and it's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. This comes from the first 10 verses of that chapter, and it illustrates Jesus's love and compassion for individuals who are marginalized or considered sinners by society. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in Jericho, and he was a wealthy man, who collected taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. Tax collectors in that time were often despised by their fellow Jews because they were seen as collaborators with the oppressive Roman authorities and were known for extorting extra money from their own people. Someone like Zacchaeus was so despised that Jews wouldn't eat at the table with him or go to his home. Despite his wealth and status, Zacchaeus was curious to see Jesus as he passed through Jericho. He was a short guy, so he climbed the sycamore fig tree to get a better view of Jesus as he passed by. When Jesus reached the tree, he looked up and saw Zacchaeus. He called him by name and told him to come down because he intended to stay at his house. This action surprised the crowd, as Jesus was showing kindness and acceptance towards someone widely regarded as a sinner. Zacchaeus eagerly welcomed Jesus into his home, and during their time together, Zacchaeus experienced a transformation. 
he declared that he would give half of his possessions to the poor and would repay anyone he had cheated four times the amount. This act of repentance, and repentance means turning from sin and going the other way, demonstrated a genuine change of heart and a commitment to righteousness. Jesus responded by declaring to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now in this story, Jesus' love is evident in several ways. First, he saw Zacchaeus as a person worthy of love and acceptance, despite his societal status as a tax collector and sinner, and even beyond societal status, the way that he was ripping people off and stealing from people. The second thing we see is that Jesus initiated contact with Zacchaeus. He showed he was willing to reach out to someone who was marginalized and ostracized by society. Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus led to transformation and repentance, but it came because of the encounter with Jesus and how it changed his heart. We don't see Jesus here preaching a sermon. We, We just see him saying, I want to have a meal with you. I want to do at your home what the other people here will not do. And this eventually led Zacchaeus to want to make amends for his wrongdoings. The other thing that we see here is that Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' worth and dignity. He called him a son of Abraham and recognized that through his faith and repentance, salvation had come to his house. So we don't see Jesus explicitly showing he hated the sin. Instead, it demonstrates Jesus' approach of loving the sinner while addressing the sin. And addressing the sin and hating the sin are not the same. Here's how Jesus addressed the sin. Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus began with acceptance and compassion and not condemnation. Despite his reputation as a tax collector and sinner, Jesus reached out to him with love and grace. He invited him to his home. This demonstrates Jesus' willingness to engage with those who are marginalized or considered sinners by society by showing kindness and acceptance rather than judgment. We see that rather than focusing on condemning Zacchaeus for his sins, Jesus' love and acceptance are what lead him to experience a transformation of heart. In response to love and grace, Zacchaeus declares his intention to repent and make amends for his wrongdoing. This transformation came about not through hate or condemnation, but through the power of love and acceptance. And love and acceptance does not mean condoning. Rather than hating the sin and rejecting the sinner, Jesus demonstrates unconditional love, and this led to that transformation. Now, this approach aligns with the broader teachings of Jesus as well. I've been studying the book of John, and I'm seeing how often Jesus emphasized love and forgiveness and reconciliation. It was central to his message of grace and salvation. So even though this is one story of Zacchaeus, this represents the overall picture of how we see Jesus interact with people. Now, in our zeal for wanting to do the right thing, we often become just like the Pharisees that just didn't get it. They wanted to follow the rules so carefully that they didn't even have compassion for people on the Sabbath day, people who were hungry and needed shelter, who needed healing, and Jesus paid attention to those people. 
In the chapter before Zacchaeus' story, we see even more of Jesus' approach. One of my favorite passages, because it's been transformative in my life as well, comes from Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. I'm going to read you a couple of verses here because these are the ones that really spoke to me and continue to remind me of the kind of attitude that I could easily fall back into. Starting at verse 9 in Luke 18, it says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When we use the expression hate about a person's sin, it brings about an emotional response that leads to a mindset like the Pharisee in Luke 18. I think this is why I have such a struggle with the expression, because it's almost impossible for me to use the word hate without it bringing about that strong and powerful emotion. It can have profound effects on individuals and society as a whole when we have a a strong negative reaction. And so there are several reasons for why hate is a, a word and an emotion that I would argue we might not be emotionally mature enough to handle. I know I'm not mature enough to handle that. First, hate is intense, and it's a deeply felt emotion that's characterized by hostility and animosity and a strong aversion towards someone or something. So for me, even saying hating somebody's sin is an intense reaction because it often arises out of fear or anger or prejudice or perceived threats. And so it's really hard for me to to filter through that and define it well and really know where the person's actions and the person leave off. These strong emotions can cloud judgment and impair rational thinking, and it can lead to destructive behaviors and decisions. Hate also can have detrimental effects on mental health. Continuously dwelling on feelings of hate can create a toxic mindset that can erode overall well-being and undermine personal growth and fulfillment. And I'm saying this about ourselves. Like if I'm constantly feeling it, if I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how much I hate someone's behavior, it's toxic for me too. It erodes that peace and makes it really hard for me to show love to somebody. Hate has been a driving force behind some of the most heinous acts in human history, including violence, discrimination, oppression, genocide, and when fueled by hate, individuals and groups may engage in harmful behaviors toward others, which perpetuate cycles of violence and injustice. And I know this sounds like really strong language when we're talking about sin, and we're talking about behavior, but I'm saying that there's kind of like this 
building and growing thing that happens. And and I it's like a snowball. We start small and and we don't always realize how far out of whack it can get. And so that's why I'm taking this moment to just examine myself and say, can I start out with this kind of feeling about even somebody's behavior, about their sin, without knowing like where I can separate between the person and their behavior. I've seen so many examples when you turn on the news of how hate fosters division and polarization within society and leads to conflicts and social unrest and this us versus them mentality that undermines empathy, undermines cooperation and understanding among people with different beliefs and backgrounds and identities. Now, I want to be really clear here that there's also a misunderstanding that if I disagree with you, I hate you. And I want to be clear about that because I believe we can we can disagree we can even strongly disagree with people without experiencing hate and i want to live in a place and i think this is probably way altruistic of me to think we can live in a place where we could express differences of opinion we could have some different moral values and make different life decisions but we don't have to step into a place of hate in that disagreement and so i'll just leave that there because i think that's way too big for me to tackle today but i do want to make it clear that hate and disagreement are not the same thing. I think that hate often escalates conflicts rather than resolving them. And so if we're having a conflict between somebody's behavior and what we think is morally right for them, it escalates the conflict. If we're continually trying to have conversations about it, we cannot engage in productive dialogue or find peaceful resolutions to disputes if that emotion of hatred is there. It perpetuates a lot of the animosity and and makes us into opposing parties instead of people on the same team. So I I just don't think that's possible for us to collaborate if there's something, if that word hate is between us. And then lastly, I think hate, in it, it hinders personal and moral development in many ways because it promotes prejudice, it promotes intolerance, it promotes closed-mindedness, and it obstructs our ability to empathize with others and understand diverse perspectives. And therefore, it, it impedes not only our capacity for moral growth, but it also impedes the ability for somebody else to make ethical decisions. Because if you're reactive, if I say something and you're perceiving that I hate your behavior, are you going to make an ethical decision and experience moral growth, or are you going to possibly be reactive and make even worse decisions? So this is just a few examples of what can happen. Using a word like hate when we think about somebody's sin requires self-awareness. It requires introspection. It requires a willingness for us to challenge our own biases and assumptions. I don't think most of us have the emotional maturity to do this well. I know I don't, and if I think I do, it's just me trying to convince myself that I can. My own emotions get wrapped up in it way too much. In Zacchaeus's case, like I said, we don't see Jesus preaching a sermon. The change came about through how Jesus loved him well. What if we promoted love while allowing the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives? What if we left space for conversations? And if we were willing to trust that God is powerful enough to work things out, if we follow his commands to love him and love people, 
What if those conversations, what if the gatherings around the table and being in proximity with each other is what brings about change in somebody's life? Now, I want to leave us today with some ways that we could practice this in everyday life. Just real examples of how we can apply this idea of loving people. And I'm saying loving people, whether we define them as a sinner or our neighbor or our enemy or whoever they are, just loving people. So the first thing we can do is love others without judgment or condemnation. This is easier said than done. It's I'm, I'm a judgy person. It's like um, I always make moral judgments about what is right or wrong with what people do, whether it is folding towels or loading the dishwasher or moral choices. It's the way I am. I'm an Enneagram One, and on the Myers-Briggs and INTJ, and that J stands for judging, I know this about myself, which means I always have to be challenging my own thoughts, my own beliefs, my own actions. I have to challenge myself to show kindness and empathy and compassion because it's not always my first response. But everyone that we encounter is worthy of dignity and respect. The other thing we can do is take time to build authentic relationships with people from all walks of life. If your circle is super narrow, you're not going to have enough diversity in your life to even understand where somebody else comes from. When we develop these authentic relationships with people from all walks of life, then we begin to listen to their stories. We understand their perspectives. We seek common ground. We build trust and we build rapport. All of this creates a foundation for meaningful conversations and opportunity for growth. It creates a safe space for those conversations. And so instead of a hostile environment, it's a banter back and forth and just opening it up to hearing one another's ideas. One challenge that we can have is living out the values of love and forgiveness and grace in our own life. When we demonstrate humility, when we show patience and kindness in our interactions with others, This models the transformative power of love and acceptance, and this is what draws other people to us. If we practice these things, then other people want to be around us. In our own homes, in our own workplaces, we can foster environments where people feel welcome and valued regardless of their beliefs or their background or their lifestyle. And this, again, means making friends with people that are outside of the circle we naturally gravitate towards sometimes. We can engage in dialogue, not debate. Approach conversations with openness and humility and seeking to understand rather than to convince or convert. This is something that has changed a lot in me. I still like to argue my husband says I should have been a lawyer, but I have often in the past wanted to have a discussion with somebody, and I still do this to my husband, so if he's listening, yes, I know I do this to you all the time. I try to convince him or to convert him to my mindset, and this is something I'm practicing because If we have a dialogue and not a debate, then we don't spend all of our time trying to cook up the argument we're going to give back because then you're not really listening, right? When we're trying to convince or convert somebody, we're just trying to think of the next thing we should say and we're just um, having this debate with them. But when we engage in respectful dialogue and encourage mutual learning and growth and acknowledge that everyone's on their own journey, then we can have beautiful conversations and we can have a dialogue instead of a debate. 
Another thing we can do is encourage personal and spiritual growth in others by offering support, encouragement, and guidance along the way. And part of this is just saying, would you like this? It's not saying, here's what you should do. It's saying, would you like my support? How can I encourage you? Um, are you looking for guidance? Are you looking for a listening ear? Do you need practical help? Do you need prayer? Do you just need someone to celebrate your victory with you? By asking somebody what they need, then we know how we can encourage them. And then it becomes less about us trying to prescribe something for them. And lastly, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives and convicting hearts and bringing about transformation. It isn't my job to force that transformation. It's my job to leave some space so that person can have an open dialogue with me while the Holy Spirit is also working on them. So we can pray for people. We can ask the Holy Spirit to work in their lives according to God's will and His timing. And we can leave that door open for God to do His job while we do the job He gave us of loving others. As we've explored this topic, it's become clear to me, as I've studied it over time and looked at it even in preparation for today, that hate the sin, love the sinner is not a simple mantra that can be applied universally. While the intention behind it may be rooted in love and compassion, its execution can fall short, lead to judgment, lead to exclusion, and even lead to harm. I want to thank you today for exploring this topic with me. It's been thought-provoking for me, and I hope it has been for you. And this is not the end of the story. Uh, this is episode number 188, and I have explored this topic over the last few years on the podcast in different ways. I had episode number 33 was, Has Fear Replaced Our Love? Um, I explored that one just looking at like fear versus love. That one is going to be linked in the show notes if you're looking for another episode to listen to. But I know this is something I will continue to cover. So I'm asking you today... As you think about your journey toward understanding and empathy and how it's ongoing, um, I'm asking you to be okay with wrestling with these complexities, to being okay with maybe all of us landing in a little different place as we wrestle with our individual thoughts and, you know, seeing where we are, where we land. But together, I'm hoping that we can strive to create a world where love and acceptance triumph over judgment and exclusion. And I'm proposing that we can still do this, but while maintaining a commitment to scripture, that we, I'm not saying throw out scripture and, and let's just love everybody and let's just condone everything. That's not where I've landed, but I believe we can live in love and we can live in unity as we allow each person on their own spiritual journey to wrestle through what, what God is placing on their hearts and what truth he is having them seek right now. So I want you to keep seeking truth, keep spreading love, and keep challenging the status quo. Because when we challenge it, that is where we begin to see transformation in our own lives. Thank you for being here and exploring this topic with me today. Thanks for listening to Life Repurposed. Would you like more? Check out the Life Repurposed magazine on Substack and get resources, weekly musings, and conversations with others. Just go to liferepurposed.me.